following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, considering our topic this morning, I thought we had rather interesting weather a little bit of rain. Now, now, don't read too much into it. You know, rain was sprinkling down, but uh, I think uh, if you really wanted us to get a full picture of baptism, we would have had a flood come through, but thankfully he didn't. I'll explain that later as we go along. But October's just around the corner. In fact, it's just a few days from now. And I'm reminded here of our tradition in October, the month of October here at Calvary, is we like to take time, a little time each Sunday, and talk about the Reformation talk about different aspects of it. And and we do that because it was the last day of October in 1517. Any of you remember what happened then? Had to do with a hammer, a nail, and a piece of paper, right? The 95 Theses, Martin Luther nailed to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And that is the flame that lit the fires of the Reformation. And while Luther and John Calvin and John Knox, Ulrich Zwingli, these are names that uh, many of us are familiar with when it comes to thinking about the Reformers, but there are many, many others, names that aren't as familiar, perhaps some, some that you've never heard about that were also very impactful in the Reformation. One such Reformer was a man named Felix Mons. He came to Zurich, Switzerland at the age of 21, and he found himself in a Bible study led by Ulrich Zwingli, of all people. And in that group, there were several other young men, and under Zwingli's direction, they studied the scriptures, and they learned about the great truths of the Bible regarding communion and baptism and the church and the gospel in particular. And so as these truths that had been hidden for centuries, that these men, as they discovered them, Mons became this bold and zealous preacher for these truths that he was learning about. But it was only a few years later, on a brisk afternoon in January of 1527 that Felix Mons found himself standing at the edge of the river Lamotte. This was a river that ran through the center of Zurich. And he was forced from that river's edge onto a boat. And in that boat, as it was moving away from shore, his hands were tied together. He was forced to squat down. A pole was placed between his arms and his knees so that he was rendered immovable. And then the boat stopped and Mons was pushed overboard. And he drowned in that river. His crime? He believed that infant baptism did not save you. And that it only is for professing believers. He was accused of being an Anabaptist, a a rebaptizer, or one who baptizes again. Because he did not believe infant baptism was biblical. That it was only for those who believe. And so Felix Mons became the first of many to be executed for the supposed heresy of believers' baptism. And in his execution, his executioners put a sadistic twist on the fact that he, the manner in which he was killed was by drowning. In fact, many mocked him and said his, this was his third baptism. They had said, he who dips will be dipped. And Mons's martyrdom was unique, not only for being the first to die for the doctrine of believers' baptism, he was the first to be killed at the hands of fellow Protestants. For it was his own mentor, Ulrich Zwingli, who had recommended to the council of the city of Zurich to eliminate the Anabaptists. And Zwingli was there in the crowd 
when Felix Mons sank to his death. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole reason behind Zwingli's involvement and his actions, but I I bring up Felix Mons because he, as well as many other men, women, and children, gave their lives for believing and for teaching the same truths that we believe, particularly regarding baptism and communion. And in thinking about his own testimony, it's my prayer for myself and for us that God would give us the same high regard for his word and everything that is written in it. And that he would grab our hearts and that he would build in us such a love for Christ and such a conviction for his truth that we too would be willing to be drowned or imprisoned or persecuted. So, beloved, may we never take for granted anything in God's word. Amen? Felix Mons certainly didn't. It's an interesting side note about him. About 10 years ago, the Evangelical Reformed Church of Zurich, they held a ceremony at the edge of the Lamont River. And in that ceremony, they asked forgiveness for the descendants of Mons and the many other Anabaptists who had been martyred. And in fact, today, if you were to go to Zurich and go to the river's edge, there's a plaque there with his name on it. It's written in German, so uh, I didn't understand it, but I did see his name there. And I bring him up this morning, I bring up Felix Mons, because of, in part of our What's Up on Sundays series, we're going to talk today about the very doctrine that he gave his life for. Doctrine of believer's baptism. We do baptisms here on Sunday, not because the Bible mandates it be done on Sunday, but it's something that we do because we're gathered together and it's an opportunity to exalt Christ, to be encouraged by what he has done in others' lives. In fact, it was just a few weeks ago that our our brother Harlan and brother Eli were both baptized in the tank right behind me. And so in light of that, I want to ask you a question. Why did we baptize them? And why did we do it by dipping them down into the water? Well, that's what I want to cover today. We're going to look at three truths about biblical baptism, what it is, what it symbolizes, and why it's important. Our outline is going to be uh, uh, the mode of baptism, the meaning of baptism, and the magnitude of baptism. And like communion, it's important that we talk about this because it seems to me that baptism is becoming yet another biblical truth that our culture is seeing as less relevant, less important. Many now look at it as an outdated tradition, a meaningless ceremony, a, a superficial event, or, or some hype it into something that it is not and change what Christ intended it to be. But Felix Mons certainly didn't take it lightly, did he? Neither should we. So the first point this morning is the mode, the mode of baptism. What is it and how does the Bible say it's to be done? That word baptizo or word baptism comes from the word baptizo. It has the basic meaning, classical Greek, of to plunge, to immerse, to dip. It's also used to mean wash and purify. And in the New Testament, its predominant idea is immersion. In fact, when you see the word baptism in the New Testament, a good rule of thumb is to put the word inversion there. That might help you gain some understanding into some of the more difficult phrases we see in the Bible using that word. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism in fire, baptized into Moses, baptized into Christ's death. But this idea of immersion is exactly the New Testament practice of water baptism. In fact, in Matthew 3, 6, remember John the Baptist, he's baptizing, and it says there in that verse that, that in the Jordan River is where he baptized as people confessed their sins. The text says in the river, not at the river. 
Or when Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3, 16, it says that he went up from the water. For him to be able to come up from the water means that he was down in the water, right? Or in John 3, 23, John, it says that John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. Now, if John wasn't immersing people, then why would having much water be an important criteria for him in locating a place to do baptisms? Clearly, he was immersing. This idea of immersion is also seen in the well-known account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. If you remember in that passage, it's where Philip came upon this man who was reading from Isaiah, Isaiah 53, and he had questions, and the Holy Spirit had led him to this man. He was a eunuch that had served in Queen, serving in Queen Candace's court. And so in verse 36, it says that after Philip had proclaimed the gospel and, and the eunuch had responded in faith, the eunuch says this in Acts 8.36, As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Here we see that, They understood baptism was more than a sprinkling or a pouring. Because they were traveling in the desert, Luke says, and it would have been likely that he would have had some container with water in it. And if if sprinkling was enough, then they would have done that. But when they came across a body of water, the eunuch says, look, there's some water. Can I get baptized? Of course, they did. Verse 38, it says they went down into the water. Philip baptized them. Then he realized the need for a body of water because when it comes to water baptism, they understood it to mean immerse or to submerge, as the word baptizo indicates. But some wonder, well, if immerse is the word, then why didn't the translators just put that in the translation, in our English translations? Why did they put baptize? That just confuses the issue. Wouldn't it be clear if just the word immersion was there? And some have said, well, the reason for that is that this is a carryover from a compromise by the translators of the King James Version. That They were being pressured by the king to not put the word immersion there, but just leave it as baptized, because at that time the Church of England was practicing sprinkling. And I like a good conspiracy theory as much as the next guy. But the word baptism actually came into common usage in English as well as French and Latin well before the translation of the King James Bible completed in 1611. You can find it in the Latin Vulgate. You can find it in the Wycliffe's translation of the Bible in English in the 14th century. But despite the many examples of New Testament, in the New Testament of baptism by immersion, some still say that sprinkling or pouring is the correct mode of baptism. In fact, the Westminster Confession of 1689 says, dipping of the person into the water is not necessary. But baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. But the question is, how did it get there? How did this idea of non-immersion and being baptized take place? Some trace it to the the days uh, when the believers in Rome went underground into the catacombs because of the severe persecution. Remember, they went down there. They could meet together, and the Romans uh, would not typically enter there. They were superstitious. But if someone had come to Christ and they were meeting together down underneath, uh, the, uh, underneath the city of Rome, there weren't a lot of lakes or rivers or large bodies of water down there. Uh, in fact, probably just only sewers, which was not necessarily a place you'd want to be baptized. So they had then adopted just pragmatically um, sprinkling or pouring in some cases. Others say that non-immersion baptisms came about because uh, there was a practice that developed, and we see some examples in early church documents where people who were unable to go out of their house because of health reasons, because of age or feebleness or certain circumstances, 
they were baptized in their home by sprinkling or pouring. But probably the most likely reason for sprinkling is due to the practice that developed toward the end of the second century, which was the baptizing of infants. For to baptize an infant, because that practice was coming about, that was not something you would not dip the infant in the water, right? You would sprinkle water upon him or her. And so this practice of sprinkling became more and more popular as time went on. Some say now that Jesus' meaning of baptizo had evolved, evolved into this idea of cleansing or of purification, like in a sacrifice. And so sprinkling would be appropriate. So the Westminster Confession speaks of that, that sprinkling or pouring is what is the right way to do baptism. And while the Westminster Confession informs much of my theology, I have a huge respect, admiration for the Westminster divines. They far excel me in their understanding of Scripture and in their example. But in regards to water baptism, sprinkling is not consistent with what the Word of God says. There's no precedence in the New Testament for such a practice. Every baptism, every water baptism is immersion. That's what the word means. That's how we see it practiced. Now, some believe so strongly in immersion that they are affectionately known as the triple dippers. They are the ones that believe that a person, when they're baptized, should be immersed not once, not twice, but three times. Now, do you know why that came about, why they come to that conclusion? Great Commission. Right, it says, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Now, there's nothing unbiblical about doing that. In fact, for some people, maybe it's better to do more than once. <laughs> but that's, the biblical requirement is just single immersion. They, they, the, the, when Jesus said, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he said, name singular, which is a great example and demonstration of the trinity god is one but in the name of the father son and holy spirit so three times is not required another important question we have to consider regarding baptism is not just the fact of the mode of inversion but but who is to be immersed who is baptism for and to answer that i want us to look at several examples of baptism in the book of acts so if you could please turn in acts turn us first to chapter eight Again, this was a chapter where uh, they had the account of Philip and the eunuch. But before that, Philip uh, had been going around in Samaria, preaching the gospel there before he ended up on the road from Jerusalem going south and met the eunuch. And earlier in chapter 8 of Acts, it describes how he went throughout all Samaria preaching the gospel. And notice what it says in Acts verse 12 says happened. There in Acts 12, it says, But when they believed... Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. When they believed, they were being baptized. Or flip over to Acts 10. Acts chapter 10. This is where Peter went to the house of Cornelius, a centurion, a Gentile. And he went there and he proclaimed the gospel. And as he was preaching the gospel, he saw how the Holy Spirit had come upon the people there. And so he recognized they had come to faith. And as a result, in Acts 10, verse 47, Peter says this, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter says, they've clearly been transformed, converted by the Holy Spirit. They've changed. They have faith in Christ. Let's, they need to get baptized. Let's do it right now. Go forward to Acts chapter 16. Here Paul had come to Philippi. 
And he happened upon a group of women who were meeting at the river's edge. And in Acts 16, 14, we read of a woman named Lydia that he had met. It says there a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening as Paul was speaking. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And so here, again, clearly God had opened her heart. She came to believe. And then it says she was baptized. A few verses later, come across the wonderful conversion of the Philippian jailer. Remember that account? Paul and Silas had been beaten, thrown in prison. They're singing hymns. And God opens the doors. So remember how the jailer responded? It's like he, he was going to take his life, right? But Paul says, stop, stop, wait, we're all here. No one's left. And then at that moment, the jailer broke. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, looking at verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his house. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So you see the connection here in these examples. Who was being baptized? It's clearly stated there at the end of Acts chapter 16, those who had believed, right? The Philippian jailer, those in his house who had come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who had repented of their sins, put their trust in him. They were then baptized. It is for believers. And in fact, you never see an instance anywhere where an unbeliever is encouraged to be baptized. Well, some might say, what about those references to the household? Surely there must have been infants in those houses that could not express their faith. But that is an assumption. Notice the passage in verse 8, or in chapter 8 of Acts. It says, those who had believed, or excuse me, in chapter 16 here of Acts, Baptism is always for believers. In fact, look back in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Peter's first sermon. Peter proclaimed to the people how Christ had been shown to be both Lord and Messiah, that God had declared him as such by by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he is Lord, that he is the coming one. And Peter then says, and you killed him. You put to death the Messiah. Verse 37 of Acts 2 says they were pierced to the heart. And so what do we do? This is when Peter said, repent in verse 38, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. See, Peter here gives them a mandate, right? A response. You put to death God's Messiah. You need to repent and be baptized, which should be evidence of that true repentance, right? And notice in verse 41, so then, Those who had received his word were baptized. And that day were added about 3,000 souls. Again, baptism being directly connected to belief. Christ in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. What was the main command he gave to the church? He gave to the disciples by extension to us. What was that main command? You remember? Go and make disciples, right? How were we to do that? How are we to do that? Make disciples by baptizing, teaching, right? Baptizing and teaching is what Jesus said. Now, who are his disciples? 
Who are they? Are they those who are expressing an interest in learning about the teachings of Jesus? Those who hope one day to follow him. Are those his disciples as defined in the scripture? Disciples are those who have made a commitment to follow Christ, right? Who have, because of the faith given to them by the Holy Spirit and repentance, put their trust in him and committed to follow him. Disciples are believers, those who have believed, those who have been forgiven, those who walk with him. And so we see here from Jesus and from Peter that baptism is a command and it's given exclusively for believers. It doesn't apply to non-believers. It doesn't apply to infants, which does not mean God does not save infants. That's a different discussion. But in terms of who is baptized, baptism is for those who have made a profession following the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd really like to get into the whole issue of pedo-baptism, infant baptism, but I can't for the sake of time this morning. But what I'm going to do is I'll put several helpful resources on our website, references that you can go to. There's some excellent books and sermons that address this issue. If you have more interest, and you can read them there. I'll make sure to, to get that done this week so you can go to our website and see that. But my goal and my hope, at least at this point, is to show you hopefully clearly that the scriptures point to water baptism as being by immersion only and only for believers. That is the mode of baptism. Let's next talk about its meaning. What is the significance of baptism? The significance of baptism is not that it brings salvation, right? Does it save? Few of you believe that. Does it save? No, it does not. There are many churches, though, the International Church of Christ and others who say that if you have not been baptized, you are not saved. They would point to passages like Acts 2.38, where Peter said, repent and be baptized. And they say, look there, that's proof. He's commanding, if you want to be forgiven, it says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But what is it they're not recognizing? What is it they're failing to realize there? See, baptism had become such an obvious response of the one who had been saved that it's been connected to genuine faith so much so that to tell someone to be baptized was synonymous almost with telling them to believe because that would be the natural expected response of one who would come to faith as seen by the many examples we looked at in Acts. These people also ignore verse 41 which says those who had received his word were baptized. Shows us repentance unto salvation first and then baptism as as a response. Others may quote 1 Peter 3.21. In fact, I want you to turn there a moment because if you're in this conversation and someone believes that baptism is salvific, inevitably this passage will come up. Because it says in 1 Peter 3.21, baptism now saves you. It's right there in black and white. And they say, see, there it is. It couldn't be any clearer. Baptism now saves you. And if you've gotten to 1 Peter 3.21 and you look there, you can see, you know what? They got a point. It does say that. There it is. It's indisputable. It's right there. Pretty direct. But if we, being good Bible students, were here, that, what, what would be the question we should ask? Excellent. Even better in first hour. That's right. Context. What is said around this verse? And so, well, yeah, yeah. This, yeah. this is how they might reply. Well, look back above. Look at verse 20. It's talking there about Noah and the flood, which is lots of water, and the fact that Noah was saved. So we have water, flood, salvation. The context is immersion in water and salvation. You know, hmm. Well, what's the very next line in verse 21? 
Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Then what does Peter say? Not the removal of dirt from flesh. Peter's saying, I'm not talking about water immersion here. I'm talking about an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. That is what saves you. A desire to be right with God, to be cleansed, to have the guilt of sin removed from you through the resurrection of Christ. Peter's saying that is what saves you. Beloved, if baptism is required for salvation, then Jesus has a pretty big problem with what he told the thief on the cross, doesn't he? You remember what he said to him? Okay, we got to figure this one out. Clearly, you've expressed faith in me. You know, we need to get you down from there so we can find some water, get you dunked, and get you back up here so that you can be in paradise with me today. Is that what he said? No, he simply said, today you shall be with me in paradise. And some say, well, he's an Old Testament saint. Well, no, Jesus died before he did. And at his death, he inaugurated the new covenant. The only way this works is if baptism is not necessary for salvation. Well, if baptism is not required to be saved, why does God want, it to, want us to do it? What does it mean then? Well, baptism is one of only two ordinances given to the church by Jesus himself, right? What's the other one? You should know this. Last week we talked about it, right? Communion, right? Communion and baptism. Those are the only two commands, ordinances given by Jesus to his church, to us, to practice. And in both of these ordinances, Christ has given them to us because he is very intentional about wanting us to see and be reminded of how they're connected to the gospel. Communion is directly connected to the gospel, right? It's a proclamation of the gospel. And baptism as well is directly connected to the gospel, to Christ's death and resurrection and what faith in him accomplishes through his work. In regards to baptism, it is the one-time declaration following salvation that it provides a picture of what that salvation has brought about. One of the things that is brought about is cleansing from sin. Acts 22.16, Paul is describing here his conversion. And, and he says after the Damascus Road experience, he went to see Ananias. And Ananias said to him, now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. And here we see, and there's several other passages which describe this washing, but baptism is this wonderful analogy. For when you submerge yourself in water, what happens to what's on your body or what's supposed to happen? Right? The dirt, the grime washes off, right? Well, in the waters of baptism, that reminds us of the filth of our sin being washed away. Now again, being baptized isn't what does the washing, right? Only by the blood of Jesus Christ can your sins be washed away. That was Peter's point in 1 Peter 3.21. It wasn't the water. It wasn't the water. Only his blood. But baptism reminds us of the amazing truth of what has happened in our heart. For it is that, it's that outward sign, that outward demonstration of an inward reality. And so every time you see a baptism, be reminded of this. Be reminded that if you are saved, if you are his child, when you see that person going into the water, having the water washed over them, you be reminded how you have been washed clean from sin. Be reminded how there is no longer any stain or blemish. Christ's blood is very powerful. It cleans out every sin. Every sin is washed 
So remember that. And remember as you see baptism that by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been made holy and righteous before God. Clean. It is such a gift. Be reminded of that great gift. In addition to cleansing of sin, there's another even greater reality that's depicted in baptism. It's one that I read from earlier. It's an overwhelming reality. It's even just the more I think about it, the more it's beyond, it's, not, it's unfathomable. Um, turn to Galatians 3 a moment. I want you to see this. Here in Galatians 3, Paul's been describing how the law was not given to save sin. You remember there were people who were telling the Galatians, the, the Judaizers were telling him you had to follow the law of Moses and then have faith in Jesus and then you're saved. So you need to be circumcised. And so Paul is in this book presenting the argument, no, it is not by works of the law that you're justified. He says in Galatians that the law was not given to save from sin, but to show our need for a savior by exposing our sin. So he says in verse 24 of chapter 3, Therefore the law has become our tutor, taskmaster, to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by what? By faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So here Paul is clearly saying what? What is it that justifies a person? What is it that makes that person a child of God? A work of the law? It is faith, right? Faith in Christ. It is faith that makes that happen. And notice what he says then in verse 27 regarding those saved by faith. For all of you who were what? You see it? You looking? Who were baptized into Christ. Who were immersed into in Christ. Again, look at that basic definition. I don't think he's referring specifically to water baptism here, but he's talking about the fact that at salvation, when you believed, you were immersed in Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean? You're totally enveloped by him. You're covered by him. That's why, if you notice the very next phrase, he says, who have been clothed, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. When God looks at you, he sees Christ around you. You have his clothes on. It is no longer you that he sees. And I think Paul uses that word baptize intentionally here so that we wouldn't miss the symbolic connection with water baptism. I mean, what's the picture? If we were a little higher last week, you know, if that were lower down and you're watching Harlan go into the water, as he went in the water in that moment that he was under there, and, and I know he was hoping it would just be a moment, Jim, you were the dunker, right, on that one? Right, when Harlan's down below the water, what is it you see? Again, let's pretend the water was down at our level. What would you see? Would you see Harlan anymore? You would only see the water, right? That's the exact picture of what has happened in salvation. You have been immersed in Christ so that you are no longer seen anymore. It's only the Lord Jesus. It's a wonderful picture. Of what has happened. It's a wonderful picture that we see. It's a union with Christ. You're now in Christ. You're clothed in his righteousness. It is no longer you but Jesus. What did Paul say? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or even a little earlier in Galatians, he said in chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And beloved, that's what baptism depicts it's that immersion in Jesus. 
I mean, think about that for a minute. Really think about that. When God looks at you, he sees Christ. You've been immersed in him. So when someone goes under, remind yourself of that truth. If you are his child, that's what has happened to you. Not only were your sins washed away, but you're now in permanent union with Jesus. And Paul even pushes this symbol a little further in Romans 6. Turn over to Romans 6. It's what I read from earlier. Here Paul's describing more fully the implications of being immersed in Christ and what that means, particularly as it pertains to who we are in Jesus and particularly as it pertains to how we deal with sin. Again, let's start in Romans 6, verse 1. Paul says there, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been, there it is, baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Again, notice Paul uses the word baptized here again, as in Galatians 3. We've been baptized into Christ. And again, I don't think he's specifically referring to water baptism, but to being immersed in Jesus as a result of what happened at your salvation. And notice here that if you are a believer, you're baptized. You're not only immersed in Christ, but he says there's even more. You're even more connected to him. In what way? He says you were baptized also into his death. What does that mean? I mean, I'm still walking around. I'm not dead. How is it that when I got saved, I was immersed in Christ and immersed into his death? What's he getting at here? Well, what he's saying is that the old you, your sinful nature, who was bound to sin, who was bound to Satan, who could not but sin, that that old person, that old man, that old woman, that guy was crucified. That guy is dead. That guy is no more. He's saying what happened when your sins were placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross, when he died, they died. And he adds to that, and just as Christ rose, you too were raised again as a new man, as a new woman. One forgiven of their sin, one no longer enslaved to it. Beloved, this is no esoteric doctrine that Paul is describing here. But it is one that is incredibly and powerfully practical. Because by understanding that you are immersed in Christ, if you have put your trust in him, that your old man is, is dead, gone. What does dead mean? Dead means dead. I know it's hard to grasp. But he says not only that, you're empowered to live differently, to walk in newness of life, free from sin's bondage. And I think Paul again uses baptism here to again help us see there's a symbolic connection because what's the picture? Someone's baptized, they go down into the water, they're immersed. All you see is the water, but they don't stay down there, right? 
Okay, just making sure. <laughs> no, they, they go down. As a, that's a picture of, of the burial, the, the old man dying. And then they come up new to walk in newness of life. Again, the act of baptism isn't what brings that about. But the act of baptism is shows that that is what has taken place. If you are a child of God. That your old man went down and died. Your new man, new woman has risen. So baptism is this picture not only of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, but also of yours. And beloved, I hope you can see, you know, baptism is so much more than than an exercise, a, a, a ceremonial tradition, an event, a religious rite that Jesus, okay, Jesus told us to do this, we need to do it, let's, let's do it. But can you see, baptism is a beautiful and powerful picture of the power of the gospel. For when you see that person being baptized, you need to be reminded, let it remind you of what Christ has done in you, that, that your sin is washed away, that your old nature is dead, that you've been clothed in Christ's righteousness, that you've been immersed in Him, that you're a new man, that you've been saved, you've been forgiven, you've been transformed, you're changed. Just like the person went in dry and now he's wet. You've been changed. Praise God for such a stunning portrait of what he has done within our hearts for those who believe. That is the meaning of baptism. Let's consider thirdly the magnitude. It's importance. One, we've seen in a sense the importance just given through what it demonstrates, what it reminds us of, what it shows us about what has been done in salvation but also, too, we see its importance by the fact that it was not given as a suggestion, right? It was not given as a, this is a, a voluntary exercise. If you want to receive God's favor, you should get baptized. Or, you know, this is an optional ceremony for the more committed among you. And need I remind you that baptism was commanded. Jesus said, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. Peter said, repent and be baptized. These are in the imperative. And indeed, the early church, they, they treated this command very highly as to be obeyed without delay. And we see that immediacy in the many examples that we looked at in the book of Acts. Right? When Ananias, remember, he said to Paul, why do you delay? It's obvious. You've been saved. You've been transformed. Don't delay anymore. Get up and be baptized, Paul. Or the Ethiopian eunuch, when he believed right away. He saw the water, said, there's some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Or Lydia, Acts 16, 15 indicates she was baptized right after she was saved. It was convenient that they were by a river. Acts 16, 33, it says the Philippian jailer took Paul and Silas that hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized. They didn't even wait for morning. It was still night. He helped Paul out, cleaned up his wounds, and said, all right, we got to get this, we got to get baptized. It says immediately that it took place. Again, in the Great Commission, baptism was so expected to be the immediate response of the believer. Jesus didn't even say, make disciples uh, bringing to faith or evangelizing. He said, make disciples baptizing. All of our acts, we see this as the gospel, as it's unleashed and people respond to the word of Christ in faith, they are baptized. And yet today, it seems baptism it's often treated as it's something I'll get to when I can. 
Something that's put off until it's more convenient. Something that we can take or leave. Something of lesser importance. But listen, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you must be baptized. Don't put off obeying the Savior any longer. And give God the opportunity, because it is an opportunity, in that moment when you're being baptized to glorify Him by telling of what He has done in your life. Don't let the fear of speaking in public or the busyness of your schedule or embarrassment that, yeah, I know I should have been baptized. Don't, don't let any of those things or anything else get in the way of doing this. Amen? Or if you know somebody who's a fellow believer and they have not yet been baptized, encourage, exhort them to obey the Lord Jesus in this. And I know there are various situations that can make perhaps your circumstance a little more difficult in knowing what to do. Perhaps you were baptized as an infant. And you're saved now, and you're wondering, well, was that baptism sufficient? Well, remember, baptism is first and foremost a declaration of a believer, right? It's a declaration of a believer. That's the example that we see. One who's declaring his or her faith in Christ. And in that act of baptism, they are symbolizing, or it is a symbol, of what Christ has done in them. Of the transformation that has taken place at salvation. And so if you were baptized as an infant... It was not your declaration of faith happening in that moment. It was your parents' desire that someday you would have faith, their commitment. So you need to be baptized then, fully immersed as a believer. Now, perhaps you were baptized as a believer, but it was not by immersion. Maybe you were sprinkled or had water poured on you. So maybe the question, well, should I be baptized again then by immersion? Well, again, the key issue is what regarding baptism? What's the most important aspect in regards to the one being baptized is that they are a believer. Right? I've said that before, right? They are a believer, and that's the key issue. And the issue then is, was your baptism a public declaration of that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That is what's most important. So as far as being immersed or not, we, we don't make an issue of it here. I will leave that to your conscience as to whether you think you should be baptized again. But again, the most important aspect is that the declaration of faith and identity with Christ and what He has done in your life. Now perhaps the situation for you is that you were baptized by immersion and you were professing to know Christ at the time you were baptized. But now you're not certain. Perhaps it was the right mode of baptism, but not the right heart. That was the case for me. I was baptized as a young child, but it wasn't until I was about 20 years old that I realized, Tim, you're not saved. (laughs) There's no evidence that Christ has done a work in your life. There's no genuine love for him. There's no pursuit of desiring to, to follow him and obey him. And so when I repented and my life radically changed, my desires totally transformed. I was thinking, well, should I be baptized again? Because last time I know I wasn't a believer. Well, again, What's the criteria? Baptism is declaration of one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and that belief and what Christ has done is now being demonstrated. So I realized I need to get baptized as a believer, a genuine believer. And I know there are many different situations and circumstances. And so if you have questions about that, you can talk to one of the elders and get some insight and and wisdom on that issue. By the way, we happen to have our baptism class happening next Sunday. 
right upstairs. If you realize now that you need to get baptized or have further questions, call Ruth at the church office. She'll sign you up, and then we will dunk you free of charge. You even get a certificate. Now, there's one more practical question. One of the more difficult ones, I think, in regards to this baptism is, what about kids? What about children? I have five kids. I wrestled with this whole issue of if or when my children should be baptized. Examples of baptism in the New Testament appear to be all adults. Perhaps there were children in those households that were baptized. It's plausible, but it's not clear. But one pattern that we do see that is clear from Scripture is that all who were baptized had come to faith in Christ. And Jesus, again, he makes that obvious in the Great Commission. Baptism is only for his disciples. And so the chief issue in determining whether anybody, no matter their age, whether anyone should be baptized is whether or not they know the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Because, again, baptism is a visible symbol on the out, what has happened on the inside, right? It's a visible external symbol. It's a picture of their transformation in Christ. So whether they are nine years old or 90 years old, criteria is the same. Are you born again? Are you a disciple? Are you a follower of Lord Jesus Christ? Is that demonstrated in your life by fruit? And what makes it such a challenge for parents is that we so badly want our children to be saved, don't we? And our grandchildren, Right? <laughs> It's an incredible burden. And baptism, I think, can kind of be looked at as this uh, almost a stamp of verification, this confirmation that they are saved. And so as soon as your kids pray to receive Christ, there's this pressure. You want to get him or her into the water, be baptized. And that would be consistent with the immediacy that we see in Scripture. But the key question, again, is, is your child's faith genuine? Because on the one hand, you don't want to hinder that faith. You don't want to hinder their desire to obey by being baptized. You don't want to uh, disrespect the importance of obeying without delay. You don't want to devalue baptism by waiting. That's the issue on one side. But on the other hand, caution is needed because your child's profession may not be real. It's a challenge. It's difficult. Children are very impressionable and trusting, especially when they're younger, right? I mean, go over... Teach a Sunday school class with Brock's permission, of course. If you go over, teach the four-year-olds, five-year-olds, and you say, you, tell, you ask them, would you rather go to heaven or hell? What do you think they're going to tell you? Would you rather follow Jesus or Satan? What are they going to say? And rightly answer, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be in heaven with him. But they're very impressionable, and they want to please their parents, particularly when they are younger. So we have to be careful not to baptize them too soon for that may tell them that they are saved when in fact they may not be there may not be a true transformation in their heart they may be self-deceived as a result that was me for years i'm a christian i'm a christian i'm a christian i was baptized tim you're not a christian and i think this has become a dangerous trend in our culture one southern baptist study showed from the years 1977 to the years 1997 over those 20 years baptisms of children under 6 increased by 250% and i'm not so sure that was because of more effective child evangelism and so some churches in thinking through this issue they encourage parents to wait till maybe the junior high or high school years to to give their child opportunities more to demonstrate whether the faith that they're expressing is their own there's some wisdom to that. 
Here at Calvary, we don't have an age rule. We leave it to the parents' discretion. My children were baptized all the way from 7, 8 years old to 12. Here at Calvary, again, we don't necessarily have an age rule of age. We leave it to the parents' discretion. Because you know your children best. You have the best vantage point to know if your child's profession of faith is real. And so in regards to this issue, let me just quote from 3 Timothy. You get that, right? This is just me talking. My opinion. This is not from Scripture. But what I think is since baptism is only for those who believe... And because we do not want anyone, whether a child or an adult, and I have told adults at times after listening to their testimony and talking with them, it's, you know, it's not that clear whether or not you truly do understand what it means to be a believer, that your faith is genuine. We need, let's talk more about that. So let, let's hold off on getting baptized. So I've, I've told that to adults. So we do not want anyone, whether child or adult, to be self-deceived about the genuineness of their declaration of faith And so because of that, I think any who desire to be baptized must first be able to articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is it that brings salvation? Knowing that Jesus Christ came to die for sins. And if you confess your sins and put your trust in him, so you'll be committed to follow him the rest of the days of your life. That is what, through Christ's blood, you're saved. Two, they must understand what baptism means, right? And thirdly, and this is most importantly, there must be a demonstration of the fruit of genuine faith in their life. And when I say that, demonstrating genuine faith, the fruit of it, I don't mean have this list of deeds that you've got there to check off, right? It's not this, okay, let's see. Reads their Bible daily, check. Goes to church every week, check. Supports a missionary, check. Double entendre there. Slow burner. Check, support me. Oh, forget it. Okay. But anyway, knows there are one of us every week. Check, big check. Is nice to Pastor Brock. Two checks for that one. Right? That's not what we're supposed to be doing. That's not it at all. The issue is desire. My kids would ask me a lot whether or not they were saved. And I, so I would talk to them about their desires. Do you want to spend time with the Lord? Do you want to spend time with His people? Do you want to obey? Do you desire to share the gospel? And if those desires are genuine, then they will be borne out in action. Again, it's not only desire, but if it's genuine desire, you will see a response to that in action, right? You will see fruit. Didn't Jesus often say, you will know a tree by its fruit, right? Now, it's impossible to cover every aspect of this. Maybe you have a number of questions. But if you do have some specific questions, I encourage you. Come talk to me or to Pastor Brock or any of the elders. They can come alongside you and help provide wisdom with your specific situation. And while we're talking about this, about children in baptism, I, I want to add the same goes for communion too. It seems parents can often make baptism a big deal for our kids, but not so much communion. You know, communion is something we do more frequently and But listen, just as baptism is for born-again believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, so too is communion. They are no different. They are both a declaration, a demonstration of having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And both are pictures of what Christ has done in salvation. Last week I had indicated a, a child or an adult should consider not taking communion if they have not yet been baptized. And I wasn't quoting from Scripture there. I was going back to 3 Timothy again, but I I didn't tell you that at the time. 
But I'm trying to make a point that both baptism and communion are for believers only. And if a believer, if a person's not a believer, they shouldn't be doing either one, right? That would be dishonoring to Christ. And so if you're not sure if your child is saved and because of that you haven't let them, haven't let them get baptized, then be consistent in regards to communion as well. Baptism is seen as an initial act of obedience. And it is one that typically happens before one begins to take communion. In fact, that was the position that was held in the early church. There's a book known as the Didache. It comes from the word didasco, to teach. It was also called the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It was written in the late first century, most likely. And it has much practical instruction in applying what the apostles had taught. In fact, some thought it was even inspired. It was not, but it does have a lot of practical instruction for us. But one of the things it says in there in regards to this issue, it says, let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist except those who've been baptized into the name of the Lord. Again, they recognize the connection. Having faith, you get baptized, you take communion as a believer. Again, the Didache was not inspired, but we would do well to consider its instructions because it reflects the importance of both ordinances being done by those who are followers of the Lord Jesus. Again, there there is so much more... I had written almost two messages just in trying to cover all the different aspects of baptism. Maybe there's things you want to discuss. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, pedo-baptism, or baptism by fire, or what are the other is Baptism of Moses. What is that all about? But I wanted to really focus on what baptism is, what God intends it to be. And I hope that the application you've gotten out of this is not simply, well, if I haven't been baptized, I better get baptized, and you need to. I hope that you see baptism is not only an opportunity to obey Jesus, but to exalt Jesus. It's an opportunity to declare how he has saved you and the work that he has done in your life. It's a wonderful, wonderful ceremony. And I hope that as you observe baptisms in the future, that you're reminded that it's not just, oh, they're just obeying what Jesus told them to do, but that you see in that the symbol of the amazing work that Christ has done in you. And I hope that as you look at that baptism and hear what and listen to what that person is saying about what Christ has done in their life, that the waters in your heart of gratitude would be stirred vigorously. That's so what I'd like to do is have us take a moment. Just meditate on your own quietly before the Lord. What baptism is what it has shown, and just the work that it has declared, it declares. And if you're saved, this is an opportunity of quiet reflection to be grateful for all that he has done in that salvation and what he has shown about that salvation through baptism. So I want to give you a moment to quietly reflect on that, and then I will pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for calling us to be baptized response to our faith in you and Lord how it reminds us what you have done through your gracious and merciful work on the cross and I pray Lord and ask if there are any here who is as Lydia who their hearts have not yet been opened to the truth and the magnitude the the power of the gospel or the power of the salvation of jesus christ through his death and resurrection i pray god you would open the eyes of their heart they would put their trust in you confess their sins you even now 
and experience the forgiveness that you offer. We thank you for baptism, Lord, showing us the washing of our sins and showing us our union with Christ and showing us the being immersed in him, clothed in his righteousness, being transformed, our old man being dead. Thank you for that wonderful picture of now walking in newness of life. We thank you for Christ who makes all of this possible. Lord, work in us. May we glorify you as a church. God, if there are any here who need to be baptized, who aren't sure, God, prompt them, move in their hearts to get those questions and get that answered. Father, we just want to obey and exalt our Savior, whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I thought it would be appropriate uh, to respond as I was considering these different passages we've looked at to sing. Uh, and can it be together? Um, just Wesley has reflected many of these wonderful truths, particularly from Romans 6 in this song. And so let's, uh, if you could please stand with me.